This week we inaugurated a new governor, and soon new leaders will take their seats of power in the state legislature and soon in the federal government as well. I mean, politics teaches us that power is the key to life. We see what psychologists call the power complex, I think, most clearly in politics. Obviously, we, we see the changes of power. We see the pursuit of power in the political world. But the quest for power is inherent to human nature. We all have it. We see it on the job, in our careers, in our families. Many a marriage ends in divorce because of the power struggles that take place in that marriage. We want control. We want to be boss. We want power. We see it in churches as well. Power struggles fracture churches. It's all part of what some have called the Eve factor. You remember when Satan was tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. And she said, we can't eat of that fruit, of that tree. And Satan said, well, the reality is that God knows that if you eat of that tree, you will become like God. And so she ate. Power. Power to control your own destiny. Power to be in charge of yourself. Power to be like God. Well, we all have and all succumb to that Eve factor in our own lives, too. We want to be boss. We want to control things for ourselves. We often want to control other people as well. And we think we will find fulfillment in life when we have the power to do whatever we want. After all, that must be where fulfillment is. Ecclesiastes has been exploring all the different ways that humans seek fulfillment, satisfaction, contentment in life. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Ecclesiastes, but we're back there this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 teaches us that power is not the key to life. The quest for power, in fact, leads to an empty life. Solomon teaches us in this chapter. Ecclesiastes 4 contains a whole series of life observations, if you will, about, about envy, about greed, about oppression, about success. But they all revolve around the issue of power. The power complex that drives human lives is the central theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And Solomon concludes that the quest for power leads to an empty life. Power is not the key to life. The abuse of power, first of all, drives us to despair. Let's take a look at the chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still living. 
But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. The abuse of power drives us to despair as we look at life. Now Solomon had left off chapter 3. That's where we left off back before the Christmas season. He had left off in chapter 3 with an encouragement to be happy in the simple, normal activities of life. Verse 22 of Ecclesiastes 3 says, So I saw that the best thing people can do is to enjoy their work, because that's all they have. No one can help another person see what will happen in the future. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24, he taught us that there is nothing better in this life now, in this world, than to take life from the hand of God as he gives it to us and be content with the hand of God. Well, those are nice sentiments. But now comes the common objection he raises here in chapter 4. If that is what God calls us to do, to take life from His hand, to enjoy life with the people we love and the work we're doing, if that's what God calls us to do in this world, and that's where we find contentment, well, what about when people take away all that you have? How can we be happy in our simple activities of life, the simple life, just going about your business, doing your job, having your family. How can we be happy when we work hard only to have some power rip it all away? How can we be happy when we see political leaders abuse their power at our expense? We pay for it. The abuse of power in the corporate world, the business world, kills the simple pleasures of life by taking away what we have. The executive gets rich, and all the little people lose their jobs. The leaders of our government make choices that we have to pay for. So how are you supposed to be happy in life with all of that stuff going on? It's a legitimate question, don't you think? And in our country, of course, the question drives many in election as we seek to change the complex of power that is in place. Now, if the abuse of power is great enough, it's going to drive us to despair, which is where Solomon is here in these opening verses. And Solomon looked around him, and he saw that the power brokers of this world caused much suffering, much oppression among the so-called little people. And they had no comforter, he said, no one to comfort them in all of that suffering. And the logical conclusion then was that it is better to be dead than alive if you've got to live through that. In fact, he says it would have been better never to have existed at all. Never to be born at all if we're going to work hard all our lives just to see somebody rip it all away and take it for themselves and oppress and abuse and we're going to suffer. It would be better not to be born. 
Now, you and I might not see the fullness of that kind of despair in our personal experience today. But if you were a Jewish person living in Nazi Germany in the early 1940s, you might reach this same conclusion on the human level, right? (laughs) Better the people who've died than for us to continue to go through this with this evil power that oppresses and We have to suffer. You see, that's the logical conclusion when there is the abuse of power in this world. And we surely see the abuse of power in this world. What's the point of life if we're going to work hard only to have some evil man take it all away? How can we be happy in life when others abuse their power? Now, When Solomon is writing, he's writing about things as they appear in life here and now. And you have to get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes to get to his answers, his solutions. And that's why I keep bringing you back to the end of that book. So once again, look to the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He writes, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. It's the end of the book. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Follow God, do His will. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So here's the answer then. Here's the key to contentment in life when we're on the losing end of all the power struggles. We must remember who is in control of this world. Who is in control of the governments of this world. The sovereignty of God is the great comfort for our souls when we face injustice and oppression. What does he say? Follow God, fear Him, obey His commandments. Why? Because God will judge all oppression, all injustice. God will right all the wrongs of this world. You don't have to worry about that. You just have to trust God. And that's the only way to find contentment when you're faced with that abuse of power. So we can be happy in this life when we remember that God is in control of this world. And no government, no power, no leader is outside of that control. Do you believe that this morning? It's the only way to find contentment when we look at a world filled with the abuse of power. The corporate world, the government world. Trust Him. That's what God says. We can trust Him to right all the wrongs so we can take each day, Ecclesiastes 2.24, as from the hand of God and be content. Paul addresses the same issues in Romans 13. And he says, God ordains human government. They, like we, answer to God. So we don't have to resort to taking matters into our own hands and abusing our power to curb the abuse of power. It was Bishop Desmond Tutu 
speaking at London's Jesus House for All Nations Church, who said these words, There's nothing more radical, nothing more revolutionary, nothing more subversive against injustice and oppression than the Bible. If you want to keep people subjugated, the last thing you place in their hands is the, is the Bible. Why? Because we know that no man can truly control us, we're in God's hands. And we will follow God's ways. We will trust in God's justice. No human government is the final authority. None. God is. And that's what the Bible teaches us. And once we live by that creed, then we... We fear no person in this world. We fear no government in this world. And we can find fulfillment in our daily lives, taking what God gives us from the hand of God, no matter what happens. We fear no government, no power, no person in this world. Second principle from Ecclesiastes 4. Success driven by envy produces vanity. Verse 4. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry, envy between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity, it is emptiness, it is futility, and a striving after the wind, a chasing the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. I like the way the New International Version actually translates verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, Solomon uses a little hyperbole here, a little deliberate exaggeration to make a point. It's not literally true that all labor, all achieve, everything that is done in this world is the result of envy. But it's not far off as a generality. We see it in the very early stages of human life, in children's lives, you see that rivalry develop. I mean, sibling rivalry illustrates the principle quite well from a very early age. Kayleen Rooster's first grader came home and proudly reported to her dad that she now officially was a brownie. She had achieved that status. She was a brownie. Not to be outdone, her three-year-old brother Christopher rushed up to Dad and proudly announced that he was a cupcake. (laughs) If she was a brownie, he was a cupcake. (laughs) Even children, you see, feel that drive. Looking at one another. Well, I want it too. That's the power complex inherent in human life. And as we get older, we just get a little more sophisticated and clever with our drive. <laughs> we, uh, we want to achieve things in life so that we feel superior to other people. The story goes that at a Comdex Computer Expo, Microsoft's Bill Gates compared the computer industry with the auto industry. And he said at that expo, 
if uh, GM had kept up with technology like the computer industry has, we would all be driving $25 cars that got 1,000 miles per gallon. <laughs> he got in his digs. Well, General Motors responded to Gates by releasing this statement. Yes, but would you want your car to crash twice a day? <laughs> hey, it's not a whole lot different than brownie and cupcake when you get down to it. It's still that comparison, competition, rivalry that Solomon says drives the achievements and the labors of this world. How often do we play the comparison game? And every time we do, think about it, doesn't it lead to discontent in the end? Because you're always going to end up finding someone who's got it together a little bit more, and so you feel discontented. How often does the success of my neighbor drive my desires, my pursuit in life? Do you feel slighted when the co-worker gets the promotion or makes more money than you do? More often than we'd like to admit, envy is driving our work and our lives, and our pursuit of success. In politics, we love the story of the rags-to-riches man, right? The person who started at the bottom of life, suffered and struggled, and he rose to power and success through hard work. That's a story that resonates with voters. Unfortunately, all too often, the person with little is driven to that success by the motive of envy. I want what I didn't have. And so I work hard to achieve it. Consumed by that desire. And it's a powerful motive. Success driven by envy is a powerful motive in life. It drives an awful lot of achievement and an awful lot of success. But it leads ultimately, Solomon says, to emptiness too. Proverbs 16.25 tells us that the way that seems right to a man leads to destruction in the end. So what's the answer? How do we deal with this drive in each of our lives? Because we all have it. Solomon uses two little proverbs to help us understand how to deal with this drive for success. They're opposites. I mean, competition is not wrong or bad in itself. It's part of human nature. The desire for achievement is necessary if you're going to accomplish anything in life. I mean, if you're going to achieve anything in life, at work, at home, wherever, I mean, there's got to be some sense of a drive to achieve an ambition, right? It's, it's, it's true if we're going to accomplish anything of value in life, and it's inherent to human nature. It's part of who we are as humans. But what do we do with this drive to success? And there are two options that he gives. He gives two proverbs, actually, that are opposites. Verse 5 is proverb number 1, option number 1. 
All right, one option, we can fold our hands together and do nothing. Laziness is one option. We can make laziness look awfully spiritual, really, by saying, I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to trust God. I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to do any of these kinds of things. I'm not going there. I'm going to fold my hands and wait for success to come to me. Well, Solomon says when we fold our hands, which throughout the wisdom literature is a a symbol for laziness, Proverbs, other places. When When we fold our hands and do nothing, he says what? We consume our own flesh. We cannibalize ourselves when we choose this option. This is not God's option. Option number two is God's way in verse 6. And he gives a proverb. And in verse 6 he says, One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. So what he's saying is you harness the drive so that we can control it, so that you can find contentment. We have two hands, is the proverb. We can fill both hands with our fists and we can strive and work and, and, and do everything that we can do to get that success. And I've got both my hands going and I'm just a-working and I'm just a-going strong. My fists, I'm not going to let go. And he says, that's chasing after the wind. It's like those crazy tornado chasers out there. They never catch the tornado. Just going and going and going. Both hands just consumed. Okay, that's one, that, you can do that. Or you can be lazy. Or you can have a balance, he says. One hand full of quietness and one hand full of work. See the balance? We need to find that balance in our lives. It is better to find rest, he says, with one hand and work with the other than to do nothing and be lazy or to be driven to fill your hands with everything that you can get a hold of. So, we work hard, but we enjoy rest too. We stop and smell the roses, and there are lots of the the metaphors and the things that we use to say this same principle. We balance our lives between the work that leads to success and the happiness that comes from quietness. This is the theme of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Can you find that balance? You won't be lazy, but you don't want to be consumed either. Why? Why can you balance? Because you trust God. So you can work hard, yes, but you can let it go too and you can rest and find quietness. All work and no play leads to emptiness. All play and no work leads to destruction and cannibalism. The balance between work and rest is God's way to find contentment in life. Third principle regarding the power complex in Ecclesiastes 4. Selfish greed breeds empty achievement. Verse 7. Then I looked again at 
emptiness, vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is emptiness, vanity, and it is a grievous task. Now, there is value in working hard in gathering possessions in order to share them with others, like our families, brothers, siblings, children, loved ones. It is good and productive to accumulate a certain measure of wealth and property and material possessions when our purpose is to share them. But when someone has no one else with which to share those things and still is consumed with that for himself or herself, then it's emptiness. In other words, poverty is not necessarily spiritual. Let's not spiritualize poverty. And wealth is not necessarily carnal. The Bible has a balance, teaches a balance. The idea that we should impoverish ourselves in order to be holy is not a biblical concept at all. But the purpose of wealth for the believer is to share with those he loves and knows, not to consume it on oneself. So, Solomon points out in his case here, his case study, that the person who has no one to share his wealth with, but works hard to accumulate wealth for himself alone, this person will never be satisfied. Just never will happen. His eyes, he says, are never satisfied with all of the accumulations that he gathers. There's always more to conquer, more to accumulate. So he works harder and harder and harder, and he feels emptier and emptier and emptier. He's chasing the wind because in the end, as Ecclesiastes teaches us, he will die. He's going to die. And all that stuff he accumulated goes to other people anyway. So it's all emptiness. Selfish greed then leads to empty achievement. Achievement in life, success in life is meaningless when you have no one to share that achievement with. Patrice Moore is a 43-year-old man. He was living in Bronx, New York. Moore lived a reclusive life in a 10-by-10-foot room where he compulsively saved everything. Newspapers, magazines, you've heard of people like this, right? Books, catalogs, junk mail. December 27, 2003. It all came crashing down on him, literally. An avalanche of all of his belongings, all of his stuff, trapped him in his apartment, standing up in his room for two days because he couldn't get out until neighbors heard him calling and groaning in the apartment. Neighbors and firefighters hauled out 50 garbage bags of stuff for an hour just to get to him. It's a pretty good metaphor, I think, for life, 
for many, many people. Only we don't think it's junk. We think it's valuable stuff. But in the end, we will drown in our accumulations of stuff if we don't learn to share that stuff with others or we don't have anyone else to share it with. And that leads to the fourth principle of the power complex. Shared lives are stronger than personal power. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We had a massive oak tree in our backyard. It was the pride of our backyard. Huge! Two grown men couldn't put their hands, their arms around it. Massive. And so, when we decided to uh, redo our backyard, we decided to keep that tree. I mean, years ago, I built a tree house in about eight feet up, you know, in the, in the notch of the tree where it's spread apart. And uh, the kids for the, for the girls, and they would play in that tree house. But a few years ago, I had a lot of trees taken down in the backyard, and we left this oak. This was going to be the centerpiece of the backyard, this beautiful, massive oak tree, which is now a stump in the middle of the backyard. The stump's the centerpiece of the yard. And now we're planting shrubs around the stump. So big, right? What happened? Well, the wind took it down with a mighty crash one day. And I hired men with four-foot chainsaws to cut this thing up. Now, understand this tree survived the ice storm of 98, right? Now, that was a pretty big storm. I was standing in the kitchen window when this thing came down. It was just a little windstorm. That's it. Nothing big. But down it came. What happened? Well, when all the other trees were there, the arborist told me, they supported this massive oak, the king of the backyard. But when those were gone, there was no support for that massive tree anymore. It needed all the little trees to survive. And so do we. We are made to be connected in the forest of life. And when we lose that connection, that support, others around us, we cannot survive in life either. Two are better than one. Because if one falls, the other can pick him up. The branches of those little trees actually held up the massive branches of that oak. Now, two are better than one because when you go to bed at night, you got another person to keep you warm. <laughs> we often see this passage used for weddings, of course. 
And uh, there's an appropriateness to that. It's a beautiful picture of the, of the partnership we have in marriage. When we learn to live in that shared life, right? In that partnership, each for the other, then we find fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment in our marriages. When, when we know that our spouse has our back, when we fall, our spouse will pick us up. And when the spouse falls, we will pick that person up. We're there for each other. Then there's satisfaction and there's contentment. It's a beautiful picture of warming one another in life. But, but when one breaks that shared partnership by pursuing individual power, then the whole thing falls apart and the marriage turns into a power struggle. And that's what happens in divorce. The power struggle, struggle tears the partnership apart. Now, there are power struggles in every marriage. There's not one marriage in this world, in this room, that doesn't deal with power struggles. Nod your heads, yes, you know that. Right? They're all rooted in this desire we have for power instead of shared living. And we get caught up in the pursuit of personal power. We forget that two are better than one. Here's a good test of power in marriage. Who controls the remote? Yeah? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's my remote. I want control. I mean, the person who holds the remote is in control. And if I fall asleep while I'm watching television and my wife goes for the remote, yeah, it's mine. I got it. Or vice versa, for that matter. <laughs> control. Well, can you give up the remote? Can you give up the remote control of your own life to God? Or can you give up the remote to your partner? Shared living requires that. Can you give up the personal control over the other one and over yourself? In your life, in your marriage... Folks, that's the way to find fulfillment in life. Two are better than one. And that requires a shared commitment. There's nothing sadder, and I've seen it over and over again, there is nothing sadder in this life than having no one to share it with. And it happens. You see, we are wired for relationships, for connection. That's the way God made us. We are made for community. That's why church is so important. And that's why I encourage you to get involved in small groups that we offer because of those connections that take place, those friendships, those partnerships. The community of faith is vital. The real power in life is found in shared lives, not individual control. Whether that's a marriage, a family, a church, 
wherever it is. Solomon says an enemy might win the battle with one person, but against two people, the two people usually win. And then he uses the proverb, and a rope, a strand of, a rope of three strands is stronger than anything. Once you get to three, by the way, you get to community. Two's not community. Three is. That's why, by the way, the triune Godhead lives in community. There are three persons. And God made us in His image. We were made for community. Three are stronger than even the two. And that's why we need one another. There is power in shared lives. There is power in community that wins out over even the greatest of evil powers in this world. Nothing destroys people like isolation. The POWs in North Vietnam shared that principle in the stories that came back from Hanoi Hilton. Ex-Air Force pilot Ron Bliss said that sometimes... The, uh, the prison, the POW compound, the buildings there sounded like uh, woodpeckers going off because what they developed was a tapping code to communicate with one another in the buildings because they were in isolation many times. The North Vietnamese never mastered the code, which laid out the alphabet on a simple five-by-five grid. They omitted K for C, which C was used. They would tap the first line of the alphabet and then the letter in that line. So the letter B would be tap, tap, tap. And they could communicate with one another throughout the buildings by tapping on the walls. Though in isolation, they were in community. The the code flowed so fluently that men told one another jokes. By the way, a kick on the wall was a laugh. So you could tell a joke and get a laugh. There was community. And every Sunday, at a coded signal that went through all of that encampment, The men stood and recited the Lord's Prayer together by tapping. And then they cited the Pledge of Allegiance too. Shared lives are stronger than any personal power. That's the principle of Ecclesiastes 4. For fifth principle, the power of position never lasts. Verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. Power. Again, he's exploring the principle of power. I saw this cartoon, thought it illustrated the way power works. The businessman in his Wall Street window, do you think that getting a scepter would be going a little too far? I'm in power. Now these verses show a contrast between two characters. 
in the story, between two people who are in positions. First, we have the old king, who is foolish because he no longer will listen to anybody else. He will no longer take advice from people. He's in power. He's got the scepter. He's in charge. And second, we have the young successor, who is poor but wise. He rises to power from very humble beginnings, in this illustration, from, even from prison. And everyone loves the new leader. He's sharp. He's smart. He listens to people. He makes good decisions for everyone. He is a far better king than the old king who won't listen to anybody anymore because he's in power. So everyone follows the new king for a while. And then what happens? A new generation arises. And the new king is now the old king. And the new generation, look at the verse, does not rejoice in him anymore. (laughs) There's a new one to follow. And the cycle repeats endlessly in life. This, Solomon says, is chasing after the wind. Now look at the world. Look at life. And don't you see that happen all the time? And it's meaningless. You know that cycle in your life too. You're somewhere in that cycle now. You enter the working world. You climb the ladder of success. The older ones ahead of you seem out of touch. (laughs) And you achieve much as you climb that ladder in your business. And then one day you wake up and you're old. And all of a sudden you're the one who's out of touch. And some young man or woman, that's the hot new leader. They're sharp. They're smart. They're on top of things. They're successful. They're rising quickly and you're no longer there. You hang on. Of course, if you don't listen to anybody or take advice, you don't hang on very long. (laughs) It goes quicker if you get arrogant about it. But sooner or later, you're replaced. And then at some point, that hot new leader, he's the old guy. And he's replaced too with another one. And the cycle continues As one person in power replaces the next. And it happens in all of life. You know it. I know it. It happens in churches too. And it happens with pastors too. So if we live for the power that comes from our positions, what we have, our status in life, guess what? We'll end up feeling empty one day as we're replaced by others. If that is what drives you, if that is your focus in life, you'll end up in emptiness. You will have chased the wind, Solomon says. So don't do it. Author and pastor Brian Wilkerson, talking about our culture today, said, suppose we were to come up with a set of Beatitudes for the 21st century. What if we made a list of the kinds of people who seem to be well off, who seem to have it made by today's standards? It might go something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Blessed are the good-looking for they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who party for they know how to have fun. Blessed are those who take first place in the division for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs like the Steelers. Where is he? Yeah. (laughs) 
Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. (laughs) Blessed are those who make it to the top, because they get to look down on everyone else for a while. That's man's way. That's not God's way, is it? But how much of it drives our lives? God's way is to trust Him. Because the quest for power and influence in this life leads to an empty life in the end. The way of trust in the Lord leads to a full life. God's way of fulfillment in life is the opposite of man. It's the way of trust. It's the way of surrender. Turn my life, O Lord, like rivers of water. Was that your prayer today? Are you ready to follow Him? To trust God is to let go of control for yourself, to surrender to God's will. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Alka Indians, said these well-known words as he prepared for the mission field. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that quote. It is so true. My friends, if you want to find fulfillment in life, then give up control and trust God. Give up control of others and trust God. Trust the Lord. Follow His commands in the Bible, Ecclesiastes says. Appreciate others, and that's where you find contentment in life. Take it each day as from the hand of God. Why don't you decide today with me that in 2011, as we begin this year, we will let God have control of our lives. And we will find our fulfillment in following him. Father, guide us, we pray, in the days ahead. As we surrender and commit ourselves to you. That we might find true satisfaction and contentment in you. And not in all the stuff we often pursue in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.